Hi, and welcome to The Eco Chamber, a podcast on all things environmental journalism brought to you by the investigative team at EMS Report. I'm James Adjupong Parsons. In this week's episode, we're going to be covering the protected sites that could be hit with Sunak's pursuit of black gold in the North Sea. The Environment Secretary Therese Coffey giving it large on rural environmental regression concerns. And a fact check on whether or not extended producer responsibility will really drive up inflation. For our deep dive, you'll be listening to an amazing chat I had with the energetic climate lawyer Paul Powsland, co-founder of Lawyers for Nature, on the role of legal professionals in a time of ecological emergency and how we might be able to save the world by protecting one tree at a time. So without further ado, let's enter the Eco Chamber. I'm joined by Ends Report's Shosha AD and Pippa Neal to help me get to the bottom of this week's big green news. And we start with the future of black gold in the North Sea. Last month, the PM threw his weight behind the latest round of oil and gas licences set to be issued for the expansion of oil and gas extraction at the bottom of the North Sea. Now, it turns out there could be a hefty environmental price tag to pay. Shosha, what's the story? So despite calls to stop all new oil and gas licences from being granted, Sunak has voiced his support um, for the latest round Um that's run by the North Sea Transition Authority. And that includes 115 bids um, received earlier this year, which is across blocks and part blocks in the North Sea from around 76 companies. Um, And research by the green groups Oceana and Uplift suggests that 40% of these sites could sit within marine protected areas Um, And they've described this as an act of environmental vandalism, approving the licences if they are granted. So these MPAs, we're talking anything from special areas of conservation, SPAs, special protection areas, triple SIs, um, kind of all get lumped under this MPA term then. Do we know what MPAs could be hit, Pippa? Yeah, so there's five um, sites that could be impacted. So firstly, the North Norfolk Coast special protected area which is a breeding site for, for a species of tern um, and then there's the wash and north norfolk coast um, special area of conservation which is protected for harbour seals um, and then there's also the fowler special protected area which is off the coast of shetland and is home to puffins and guillemots there's also the liverpool bay special protected area which is home to the red-throated diver and the common scoter during the winter And then finally, there's the Southern North Sea Special Area of Conservation, which is home to protected harbour porpoises. So these are all sort of very, very important protected areas for wildlife. Um, That's, you know, the the iconic wild isles species that we saw on that series. This is these are the homes of those these animals. To justify the expansion of, of natural gas and oil in the North Sea, which may hit some of these sites, these protected sites. We've heard this kind of narrative around Putin and security and national security supply to kind of justify the risks, the rewards justify those risks. Can you just explain a little bit more about that, Shosha? Well, the government, as you said, have justified it um, in terms of energy security. Um, But what's also important to remember is that oil and gas is not really a short-term fix, as it can take years before it gets to the point where this resource is ready to be extracted and then ready 
to be used. So according to green groups, um, the majority of what's left in the North Sea is crude oil, of which 80% gets exported and then is reportedly sold back to us in the UK at market price. Um, and according to an analysis by Uplift, even if none of the gas we produce from these licenses was exported, they'd only give us an additional three weeks of gas per year. So hmm. <laughs> it's quite interesting, those figures. And that, and the, and I read that the we import sort of single digit of natural gas, something like 4% actually comes from Russia. And yet it is interesting to see that narrative spun in the media for, from the government. It isn't, to be clear, Rishi Sunak's decision about the oil and gas licenses that get awarded. It's the North Sea Transition Authority. Um, and that is the body responsible for this 33rd round of oil and gas licensing. And it did punch some holes in the NGO's analysis, didn't it, Pippa? Yeah. So it said that um, because, you know, these licenses haven't actually been granted yet, that it's impossible to say the extent to which they'll impact these protected areas. Um, and they also did flag that um, where there is a potential for any likely or significant impact, the offshore petroleum regulator will undertake an assessment to determine if the activities could have an adverse effect on the integrity of such sites. And they also said that licenses are only awarded where it has been ascertained that there will be no adverse effect on the integrity of these highly protected areas. So yeah, there's a lot of uncertainty towards the actual impact this could have. The narrative, though, seems to be all for it. Um, it is interesting, though, the, the pro-licensing enthusiasm coming from Westminster but not so much from Whitehall, Pippa. Mm. So it was really interesting, actually. So the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs Group of PCS, which is the largest civil service union, um, they they released like a very damning statement towards Rishi Sunak and the government um, around this, this oil and gas licensing. Um, and they said, and this is the quote, quote they put out, that statements made by senior politicians which argue that increasing domestic fossil fuel extraction is compatible with the UK and global net zero commitments are not correct. Um, not they, being the operative word. There. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they said, you know, these values are grounded in the civil service code and that if the prime minister was a civil servant, he would stand in gross breach of that code as his announcement is not rooted in evidence and, in, and is in fact misleading. They said it's not possible to max out oil and gas exploration in the North Sea and claim you are heading for net zero. Uh, a bullish prime minister, it seems, and a bullish environment secretary after it was revealed last week that she has dismissed concerns from the Office for Environmental Protection over environmental regression under the Rule Act, this retained EU law act. Shosha, just remind us, what is rule? Why should I care? And what is this story? So yes, the retained EU law bill is... Um, quite a complicated piece of legislation, but it basically gives ministers sweeping powers to remove EU-derived laws. Um, the bill made it through Parliament in June. It's been given royal assent, but a lot of the powers under it won't come into effect until after the transition period, which we're in now, and that will end at the end of 2023. So, originally, so it's coming down the tracks then, end of the year. It is coming down the tracks, and I think that's why we're seeing all this momentum and, and all these concerns being raised because we are going to find out soon what the plan is, basically. <laughs> um, 
Originally, all EU laws were on the chopping block um, as there was a controversial sunset clause, which was going to see um, everything that we basically copy and pasted when we had Brexit um, deleted from our statute books if it wasn't kept by ministers or amended or you know, purposefully revoked. Um, but after it was realised how much admin this would cause, um, there's now 587 EU legislative instruments that are going to be chopped by the end of the year. Um, all retained uh, directly effective EU law, which includes rights and obligations formally conferred under EU treaties and directives, will also be revoked. Also, retained EU laws still had supremacy over domestic laws even after Brexit, but thanks to this bill, that will change at the end of the year as well. Um, and retained general principles of EU law, which govern how EU law is interpreted, will be renamed as assimilated law. We'll also be allowed to depart from a legacy EU case law more often in the courts. Um, for example, the Dutch nitrogen case, which underpins the current controversial nutrient neutrality advice that's been given um, by Natural England. Which is currently blocking up thousands of homes around special areas of conservation in England. Exactly. And causing lots of headaches um, on both sides. So you can see why this this bill is really worrying for green groups, because it causes a lot of uncertainty and a lot of change. Um, and as you've mentioned, it's also been a cause for concern by our green watchdog, the OEP. So to give context on the environmental regression, um, peers did try to get a non-regression commitment in the bill before it was passed, but they had to go back on this because the ping pong game got quite extreme. Um, and so the OEP chair, Dame Glenna Stacey, um, wrote letters to the environment secretary raising concerns that there's still an immediate risk of this regression. Um, and she said that this could have negative implications for environmental law, either by weakening its protections or creating a potentially protected period of uncertainty. So basically, the OEP is worried that the current government is going to go back on some of its environmental pledges, which it keeps pledging. Exactly. That was a very concise way of putting that. Thank you. <laughs> is there any sort of hope that, that Dame Glenn Stacey gave us in those letter exchanges with Trues Coffee? Um, she did point out that the government have committed to prioritise environmental protection and international commitments um, as it takes forward the legislative programme for the reinstatement of retained EU law under the Act. Um, she said... We will be interested to see how any risks will be addressed before the end of this year to ensure there is no weakening of environmental protections as the government has committed to that. Um, she also said that alongside this risk of regression, there is a potential for the Rural Act, um, you know, to make environmental protections stronger. So there is that, like we could be better if we wanted to um, on the flip side. I like it. But coffee wasn't having any of it in terms of Denglin Stacey's concerns of the direction of travel. Yes, that's true. Her response was, we do not share your concerns that the passing of the Rural Act has negative implications for environmental law, um, which is quite a strong rebuttal there, I think you could say. Um, she also said, we've been clear in Parliament about our commitment to uphold environmental protections and that environmental statement is due to come into effect on the 1st of November, which is obviously ahead of these rule powers. Um, she also said the government uses expert advice when making provisions that relate to the environment. Um, 
a last line that is a bit concerning um, because we at ENDS did uncover in a series we called the DEFRA Dispatches that whistleblowers had raised concerns that official expert advice was being repeatedly ignored by ministers. Um, and DEFRA strongly disputes the whistleblower claims. But I do think that is an interesting point to add to the discussion. DEFRA Dispatches, go and read it, people. There have been other concerns, especially in regarding air quality, Pippa, if we can bring you in here to the conversation why 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 is Dangren Stacy concerned in this field of the environment? So in the letter, um Dame Glenn Stacy also raised specific concern about environmental regression relating to regulations nine and ten of the National Emission Ceiling Regulations um twenty eighteen. So these regulations set legally binding emission reduction commitments um, for five air pollutants. And Regulation 9 requires that the Secretary of State prepare and implement a national air pollution control programme in order to limit anthropogenic emissions in accordance with the national emissions reduction commitments. Sorry, also a bit of a mouthful, but hopefully you can follow. Um, And then Regulation 10 requires that before preparing or significantly revising the National Air Pollution Control Programme, the Secretary of State must consult the public. Um, And in her letter, um, Dame Glenna Stacey said that the, the, you know, revoking these regulations seems to weaken accountability and transparency. And she said in the absence of an alternative comprehensive plan, it has the potential to weaken environmental protections. Um, She also wrote that the OEP look forward to seeing how the key attributes of these regulations that are not currently duplicated in other legislation are maintained, either in new legislative provisions or in other suitably robust ways. Um, And she said, you know, this appears necessary if the government is to fulfil its commitment, as Shosha says, to, you know, not for non-regression in environmental aspects. It's interesting, isn't it? So some of those pollutants we talk about with PM 2.5, PM 10, I think under the current uh, round of, of derogations, we're seeking one for ammonia emissions because we haven't quite covered ourselves for the upcoming decade um, to be compliant. But a lot of words there for like everything's, it's, it seems to me that everything's all right. Don't worry about it. It's all in hand. Yeah. Without the sort of the, the policy to back it up. And she does remain defiant on this point as well, doesn't she, Shosha? Yes, Therese Coffey said, we remain committed to reducing emissions of these five key air pollutants and achieving the emissions reduction targets set out in the National Emission Ceilings Regulations. Um, The targets in this, she said, remain unchanged and there is no reduction in the level of environmental protection. That's quote. Um, She also said that the government's intent in removing regulations 9 and 10 is to reduce administrative burdens and aid transparency regarding air quality emissions policy. So that was her line on that one. It's going to be even better. Yeah, just to (laughs) jump in there, it is interesting that she says, you know, the point of revoking these regulations is to aid transparency. Whereas, you know, as as I said, one of the regulations is to have a consultation. So when I spoke to lawyers about this, they said it does just seem, you know, it's not really clear why they're doing this, but it does just seem difficult to understand why it, why it would be anything other than, you know, skirting accountability. Maybe she loves a paradox. Maybe that's her <laughs> game. Well, we'll have to fact check that as things come down the line. You have already fact check um, a recent government rationale put out there for deferring the implementation of 
its nascent waste policy, the EPR, Extended Producer Responsibility, Pippa. What was this about? So just, just fill us in. What is EPR and when can I expect to see it? So EPR um, was first proposed as part of the Resources and Waste Strategy in 2018. And the aim is to force producers to pay for the full cost of the disposal of the packaging that they place on the market. Um, so it's quite simple and it makes logical sense to most people. So I'm a company, I make this box, I'm responsible for the materials of that box and making sure that it's safely put in waste correctly. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the scheme was initially due to be introduced in 2023. Um, but following the second consultation, the government announced it'd be introduced in a phased manner from 2024. However, recently, there's been kind of various um, rumours or in other words, anonymous briefings to, to you know, the media. Um, I think it was first in the Telegraph, actually, um, you know, suggesting that EPR would be delayed. Um, and at the end of July, DEFRA published um, and then swiftly deleted an announcement detailing its plans to defer the packaging fees under EPR. Um, so they basically kind of added a line into one of um, the EPR guidance where they said, we're delaying it for a year. Um, and then when I saw that update and clicked on the document, the document was then removed. So it looked like that was basically done in error. Um, but later in the week, DEFRA then formally announced that it was indeed delaying EPR because uh, me and other journalists kind of got wind of this and were asking questions. Um, and in a press release, they said their reason for doing this was to, in quotes, drive down inflation. Just to try and explain their reasoning behind this, um, the cost of the new EPR system is expected to be around four times higher than the current cost of the packaging waste recycling note system. And by dividing the predicted cost of EPR, which according to the latest consultation is 1.7 billion, by the number of households in the UK, which is 27.8 million, trade groups have previously estimated that the introduction of EPR will cost households an extra £60 per year or around £1.15 a week. So EPR then is is responsible for inflation. It's not oil, it's not the cost of borrowing, and it's not international conflicts. It's that pesky EPR. What have experts made of this decision, Shosha? So um, Richard Hudson, who's a technical manager at the Chartered Institute for Waste Management, said it would be naive to think the cost won't be passed down to some degree. But he said this doesn't mean that it would add to inflation. He described the government's announcement as playing into the political mood of the moment. But then Harry Cobbold, who's public affairs manager at the Food and Drinks Federation, said that actually there was an inflationary element to the EPR scheme rollout. He said that this um, £1.15 a week, was it, mm -hmm. that he said? He said that um, this per household in the current climate is a considerable amount um, and continued most manufacturers need and want EPR. UK is lagging behind, but the policy wasn't ready, so it's right the government delayed it. So then on the other side of the argument, Libby Peake, who is head of resource policy at the think tank Green Alliance, described the argument as flawed um, and said that framing the EPR delay as anti-inflationary ignores the fact that the public is already paying for the costs that are associated with this packaging waste. Interesting. Which is an interesting argument. In fact, interesting arguments on all sides, really. Mm. So inflation's already here. It's already embedded in the system. Mm. Fact checks. Boom. Yeah. When I was speaking to um, Libby Peake, it, it was interesting because it feels like there's been um, other examples where um, the government is using 
inflation or cost of living crisis as a reason to backtrack on green policy. And as that quote by Richard Hudson, it does seem like it's, you know, kind of responding to the political movement or the like the public kind of what's going on in in the in the world rather than an actual reason to delay the implementation of a policy. So I think it is quite a, a worrying sign and definitely one one to watch because we've already seen a lot of backtrack over green policy recently. I think another element of that that's quite interesting is the public doesn't actually seem to want a backtracking on green policy. I mean, from our own polls that we did over our social media channels, um, mo- the majority of people voting in those polls disagreed that you know, we'd reduce inflation by delaying this rollout. And they said that we want the rollout. So, you know, that's quite a limited survey, it has to be said. But do people want backtracking on green policy? Is that what voters want? We'll We'll see. We'll see in the next election. Yeah. It's time now for our moment of the week. Shosha, what was yours? So I don't know if you know, but on Tuesday, it was actually International Cat Day. International Cat Day? Yes. I did not know this. It was. And I saw on Twitter that Number 10's chief mouser, Larry, uh, was paid a visit by people from Battersea Dogs and Cats Home. Uh, He came to check up his microchip um, because actually the law is changing from June next year where cats over, I think, 20 weeks will need to be microchipped to help... um, with this problem with having stray cats on the streets. Apparently there's like 300,000 stray cats on the streets, roughly. Right. Um, Cats protection stats, which I didn't know. I thought that was quite a lot. Where? In London? I think in the UK. Oh. So so microchipping is the future future vote winner, we think, they think. Perhaps. Perhaps. Larry, we don't know what Larry thinks, but he looked very happy. (laughs) Good, good. But what was your moment of the week? Um, So mine is related to some good news for butterflies. So according to the Butterfly Conservation, there's been 170,000 sightings of um, red admirals so far this year. And they said this is a 400% increase. Um, So yeah, this is great news. Although they did highlight that the reason for this is probably due to higher temperatures in the UK, which means so that much. yeah, <laughs> which means that the red admirals, which are a migratory species, are actually staying in the UK longer rather than um, flying abroad. Mm-hmm. So what appeared to be a good story is maybe not, but it might mean you spot some more beautiful butterflies around in your gardens. I saw my first red admiral last week on the concrete pavements of Elephant and Castle. <laughs> I was very happy. For five seconds. Um, for what is worth, my moment of the week was the Greenpeace stunt on Rishi Sunak's house. I don't condone it, but I do think it's hilarious that they managed to find blankets that size to cover his home. <laughs> and I also think that it, the response from DEFRA to ban communications with Greenpeace is a moment for media organisations. That blur between media and campaigning so obviously you've got unearth that kind of the media arm of Greenpeace and DEFRA seem to be making it very clear that it doesn't matter what side, you know, we're not going to speak to you. I just thought it was a very interesting moment uh, for media to pay attention to. Time now for our deep dive with Lawyers for Nature co-founder Paul Powsland, who was the first barrister elected to the bar on a purely climate platform. Listeners, you are in for a treat. I found Paul's thoughts so interesting on the role of direct action to protect nature, 
We talked about legal ethics and why he decided to risk jail time for climbing up a tree, all in the name of protecting Mother Nature. But first off, I wanted to find out more about the infamous Sheffield tree felling program, which was once described by the now Housing Secretary Michael Gove as bonkers and the former Lib Dem leader Nick Clegg as a national scandal. So let's jump right in. So, Paul, on trees, you were instrumental in the saving of thousands up in Sheffield over what was years and years of protests against the the saga up there. Can you just tell us and our audience who are unfamiliar with that two billion pound fiasco, what that was all about and how it actually galvanised you and Lawyers for Nature? Oh, it's quite a big, quite a big topic. I'll try and explain it as quickly as possible. I should say right at the start that although I, I did a lot on legal advising of the activists on the ground, it was they who were instrumental in stopping those trees being felled. And I really want to emphasise their role in it, which I'll explain a bit more in a second. Um, so the this, this very short summary of what is, I think, a, a seven or eight year saga in the end um, was that um, Sheffield City Council signed a PFI contract with a private company to um, redo their rows in Sheffield. Now, the contract was a bit of a nightmare and it wasn't even disclosed till very late on um, in the campaign. But effectively, the contract incentivized the private company to remove trees. And in the end, after much campaigning, the campaigners managed to get out the fact that 17,500 street trees were threatened within the life of the contract. A lot of trees. A lot of trees and a lot of very beautiful mature trees. Sheffield is known for its street trees. It was a real jewel of the city. And um, effectively what happened was local people rose up and said no and um, did some of the most incredible, gallant campaigning that I've ever witnessed or been a part of and and won effectively. But it was, it was a very hard fought campaign. You know, Some people were standing un- out under trees for every day for I think a couple of years gave up their lives in all weathers to stand under trees. And then they were brutalised by the police, South Yorkshire police. To stand in front of trees to stop, literally stop the chainsaws. Yeah, it's literally, it, fr- yeah, literally there, there'd be a chainsaw coming. And they had, um, the, the protesters had um, sort of groups that would, flying squads that would go around the city. So that someone would report from their home, we've seen a arboriculturist arbor on the street with chainsaws ready and people would drive down there and stand underneath the tree. No way. That, that's a lot, but then it just, it got wilder and wilder because then the council started coming back on them and employing South Yorkshire police to arrest them. And that's when I, I wrote an advice saying those arrests were unlawful, which it turns out they were. And then the council brought in private security guards and got an injunction that basically made it um, imprisonable for up two years to stand under a tree on the, on the street. Wow. Trying, and they tried to put one of their own councillors in jail, uh, old ladies, you know, it was like real mad. It just got out of control, basically. Um, but eventually... It got so out of control in a way that the protesters won because they were having to expend huge sums of money and energy just to fell one tree. And um, the, but because the contract was, we're talking billions of pounds that for the lifetime of this contract that Sheffield yeah, exactly. signed. Yeah, so yeah. big money, big stakes. Yeah. And, and and the other key thing it illustrated was that you know through when when I when I got involved at the council for years was swearing blind that they couldn't save these trees it was uneconomic it wasn't possible and it was things like a, a tree had grown and had gone had pushed the curb out a bit and they need to have a straight curb line so they instead of like trying to figure out a way of doing it they just chopped the tree down 
that kind of madness, you know? And actually, once the council backed down and said, okay, we'll look into this again and we'll go on a tree by tree basis with the campaigners to work out if there's ways we can save it, every single tree was saved in the end by such innovative methods as creating a half curb or putting in flexi paving. Right. You know, not, you know, not, not beyond the wit of man. And there were, it's worth saying that it was such a long fiasco, years. I think it's something like 5,000 trees were felled, yeah. ultimately, of these, many of the mature trees. But you and the protesters managed to save how many? Well, the, if it hadn't been for the protesters, then 17,500 would have gone. So that was over 12,000, I guess, would have gone eventually. So they, they, there, there are. I've, I've been up there and looked at some of the trees that were saved, and some of those streets. It's like a cathedral of green. Yeah, it's like the the trees are like the pillars and the nave of a cathedral, stretching right out over the over the street, and um, they're they're incredible. And to think that they were just going to be chopped down to save a few hundred quid in a roads contract is just unthinkable. Unthinkable civic vandalism. The the council has apologised this year. I saw yeah. a very official. It seemed a very remorseful statement. Do you know if that's sort of been accepted by the protesters? I mean, I think they're glad the apology has come. But the problem with apologies in all of these kinds of cases involving the destruction of nature is it can't bring nature back. And this is, I think, something that then goes through all the different cases I've done since then, is you need to stop the felling and then and then deal with the legal process and all this other stuff. Because once the tree is gone, you cannot bring it back. And ultimately, Sheffield City Council and its leaders unnecessarily destroyed civic assets, which are, which are worth millions of pounds for no reason, made the city uglier, less beautiful, less environmentally resilient for no reason. And just saying sorry doesn't really undo that. Is that, you see, you know, I can feel the passion. Is that how you started Lawyers for Nature? Yeah. So having got involved in what happened in Sheffield, I realised that um, environmental protections in this country were really insufficient. Um, and there was no one batting for nature. You know, in the Sheffield tree dispute, the person, the, the organisation supposedly looking after the trees was Sheffield City Council. Right. The archetype of the, the fox guarding the hen house. Um, and that's the case throughout the UK. Every organisation that is supposed to be looking after nature has, I think, clashing priorities. You know, even as far up as the Environment Agency, they do some good stuff to protect nature, but they're not just a nature protection agency. They have so many other interests and decisions to make as well. And our law is fundamentally not, um, not bringing nature's voice into that process. And so I founded Lawyers for Nature to try and represent other local groups like in Sheffield. Then we got completely overwhelmed because there's literally hundreds, probably thousands of these kinds of nature destruction cases going on around the UK. There's no funding for them. There's no legal aid for it. And a lot of the time people don't have money to fund these cases. So there's a huge need for legal services. So we, we became overwhelmed. We were just volunteers. And so then we've now moved into doing some of that work where those cases can make a systemic difference, um, sort of um, test cases almost, um, and also campaigning for rights of nature and to change the entire way that law and the legal system relates to nature. Because otherwise we're always going to be firefighting these kinds of Sheffield destructive cases that are still going on now. You know, I've been involved in a number this year. That's interesting. So fast forward to this year and I saw you on my Twitter stream, my X stream, 
uh, up a tree, um, direct action protesting. Mm. Uh, and I remember when we spoke at the time, you said, I didn't actually mean to be up the tree. Can you just tell us why why you were there, why you were processing what that, what that was about? Yeah, it's actually a really nice example illustrating this point I mentioned a moment ago with Sheffield that um, sorry doesn't bring a tree back. Um, I basically got contacted by a group of citizens in Wellingborough who'd had a couple of days notice that um, their avenue of lime trees, I think 120 years old, one of the longest in the country, was going to be felled. Um, and they contacted me and gave me some legal advice. And I, I was actually, I'd just come back off for a weekend away. It was like 10 o'clock on a Sunday. And I was like, I'm going to have to tell them no, because I'm exhausted. And then I started reading the papers just to check. And I was like, oh no, they're, they're legally right. Right. I'm going to have to write this advice. So I wrote them an advice saying that it appears to fell the trees would be unlawful because the trees had tree preservation orders on them. Right. TPOs. TPOs. Okay. And there didn't appear to be a valid exemption to that. Sent them the advice, assuming that would then be okay. And apparently I then heard back, that was Sunday night, I heard back on Monday evening that the police were still assisting the developer to fell the trees anyway. My case on Tuesday settled. So I was like, oh, I'll pop up to Wellingborough and talk to the police myself, I guess. So I went there in the morning and literally got my laptop out and said, yeah, this is my barrister's advice, 10 pages long, explaining the law. Can you tell me which part of this you disagree with? And they were like, oh, we're not getting involved. And then literally 20 minutes later, surprise, surprise, they did get involved. And they came along and said, if, if you don't, the protesters don't move out of the way, um, we're going to arrest them for aggravated trespass. And it's such an interesting situation because basically the interpretation of the law depends on which side was committing a criminal offence. If an exemption to the TPO regs existed then indeed the protesters would be committing aggravated trespass because they would be stopping a lawful activity, the felling of the trees from taking place. If there wasn't an exemption, then the developer would be committing a criminal offence, felling a TPO tree without consent. So in that situation, right, and the police literally were like pushing the protesters away. So the developer was standing there with a chainsaw to fell a tree. Right. And so I had a choice. I could either walk away, go behind the barrier and argue it out. And six months later, find out actually I was legally correct. Um, and the police would, like in Sheffield, issue an apology. We're very sorry. We, we felled your irreplaceable trees. Oops. Or I could take action right there and there peacefully to stop it. So I just, without thinking, basically started climbing the tree. It was really cold, so my hands didn't quite grip. And a protester just shoved me on the bum and I sort of went up into the tree. <laughs> and then I was just looking down at the police and they were looking up at me. And then they put me under arrest whilst I was in the tree <laughs> and told me I had to come down. And I said, no. And so I stayed there for, I think, like eight to 10 hours in the freezing cold. And you, yeah, right, you didn't have any thermals or anything. You, no. It wasn't planned. You just no. got no, like, scarfed. No food, you don't you? Like a tiny bit of water. But but it was it was a social media storm. Yeah, and that was that was also quite funny because whilst under arrest, I was still able to go on Twitter and say that I was under arrest, which then kind of went viral. Right. And then the head of the council came down. He blanked the protesters for weeks. Finally, he having because it, it caused such a storm, he came down and negotiated me. If I came down, they would arrest me and bail me on the side of the road. And um, then we went for a meeting the next day, and they suspended the tree felling. Still suspended, and the local residents are now have now raised thirty thousand pounds. Amazing to do a judicial review. But the point is that judicial review. Would be completely OTX, completely pointless if I hadn't climbed that tree because the trees would be gone. And you, you can argue all you want about it afterwards. You mm. can have all the sorries in the world. The mm. tree's gone. A mature tree like that cannot be replaced within our lifetime. I'm, I'm, I'm still on bail for that, by the way. So we'll see, we'll see how that goes. Really? <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. It's good old Northamptonshire police. Oh, gosh. Okay. So, so that, that point then on, on what lawyers should be doing, and you're talking about direct, direct action there. 
there is a question I wanted to ask you about the lawyer that the action lawyers should or shouldn't be taking when it comes to representing clients who are, say, opposed or at least not taking a part in solving the biodiversity crisis, the climate crisis. So I'm thinking this idea of the ethics of lawyers. Do you think there is a position or a case to be argued that lawyers shouldn't be taking on certain clients, such as oil corporates, um, if they're not addressing those big issues? Yes, and it actually is slightly different from saying, oh, they're not addressing certain issues, therefore I won't represent them. The issue at the moment is that there is no right to legal aid in civil, most civil cases and definitely not in most environmental cases or in, in most environmental cases. So we have, a, we have a system where those who are able to pay for lawyers have the law skewed in their favour. And lawyers are doing absolutely nothing, as far as I can see, to redress that balance. Because they just say, well, we're just applying the law as it is and just representing the clients that come to us. It's like, no, you're skewing the legal process in favour of those who are able to afford your massively inflated fees and therefore providing uh, skewing the law in favour of the rich, usually against the natural world. Sheffield being another prime example, um, Sheffield City Council spent hundreds of thousands of pounds on top barristers, uh, largely from landmark chambers in London, to get these injunctions to put local people in jail for standing under trees. Right. And vice versa, they couldn't then afford £100,000 worth of legal fees to oppose or fight back. No, even worse, um, it was the threat of Sheffield claiming those legal fees, their own legal fees back, that was one of the main pressure points against those protesters. Because Sheffield City Council basically said to them, if you oppose us and our injunction, we'll take your house off you in costs. We'll claim twenty, thirty thousand pounds of cost of you, and we'll take your house off you. That was the threat behind a lot of what Sheffield did, and those inflated barrister fees allowed that to happen. And one of the barristers who represented Sheffield, not they're not just an innocent bystander. She was one of the key then QCs, now KCs, who developed this whole area of injunctions to to um, stop people protesting peacefully. So they 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 they've actively helped to develop this law. So what you're um, saying is there's there's no such thing as a neutral client, regardless of whether you take on a case. You can't just say everyone is the same. I can represent because they need they, the law is. You know, I think I think there are circumstances in which you can say there is a neutrality there. For instance, in crime, we get reasonably close to neutrality because of the existence of legal aid. So if you're accused of murder, um, you know the state will pay for you to have a very good barrister who will argue your case for you. And therefore, I don't necessarily think there's anything wrong with there also being a very good prosecutor who's prosecuting you because you have one good barrister on one side, another good barrister on the other side, and they fight it out. Fine. But that is not what happens in a lot, in most environmental cases. There is a huge skewed power and wealth imbalance between those who are trying to destroy the natural world and those who are trying to save it. And that leads to very unjust outcomes and situations like in Sheffield, where ordinary people were threatened with jail and losing their homes for trying to do the what has now been admitted by the council to be the right thing, saving those trees. And had the law prevailed, had that, because basically the, the protesters ignored the injunction and some of them got suspended prison sentences for it. Had that law prevailed, thousands of trees would have been felled for no reason. And that's the end result of that. And, and this, you know, I think going back to this as well, there's... Um, uh, a group called Lawyers Are Responsible, which I helped to found, um, which 
goes a step further and says that for new oil exploration, we won't represent oil companies who are doing that. And that has definitely put the cat amongst the pigeons at the bar because of what's known as the cab rank rule, where you're supposed to represent anyone. Right. But of course, a cab rank only works in, if we think of the actual cab rank, uh, if there's a, also a state regulated maximum fee set at a level that most people can afford. Because it's pointless saying that any cab will pick you up, but if you step into one, the fee for a journey could be £10, £100 or £1,000. Cabs don't work like that. They have a maximum fee. And maybe it needs to be the same with lawyers. Because by having a cab rank where you're supposed to accept any client, with the only exception being if they can't afford your inflated fees, that gives a huge skewing of the legal system towards the wealthy and the powerful. And the wealthy and the powerful at the moment are those destroying the earth, by and large. You've been very strong, very brave, very uh, crazy to confront some of the people in power. And I'm thinking of an example in the inner temple where yeah. you were confronting this the the, the organisation in charge of putting the speakers in front of the audience of, of lawyers. Can you just explain to us a little bit about that, sort of how that arrangement works and why you were so upset with the speakers talking on climate and oil? Yeah, so there's been a few little run-ins over the course of the year. I mean, basically, I got elected last year to the Bar Council, um, which is the governing body of barristers, um, on, I think, the first person ever to get elected on a pure climate change manifesto to effectively have a debate about our role within uh, the, the role of barristers within the climate crisis. And so far, um, there is a climate working group, but we're stuck in what I would regard as an early 2000s position of changing light bulbs and printing on both sides of the paper, which is what's called net zero in the profession. So it's like, as long as barristers, our own emissions from our chambers and from our travel are net zero in 20 years time, that's acceptable. But of course, that the emissions that we cause as barristers are a tiny fraction of the emissions that we cause indirectly through our work, through um, through enabling the fossil fuel industry. And that's the part nobody wants to talk about because it's incredibly lucrative. London barristers are likely earning tens, maybe hundreds of millions of pounds from the fossil fuel industry. It's one of our most lucrative areas of work. And there are a lot of very powerful, very rich people who don't want that work to be questioned. Um, and one of those people is Nick Vinyl, the chairman of the bar, who, um, who who basically believes that I, in the time of a climate crisis, as a barrister, should be forced under the cab rank rule to represent new, uh, to, to help open new oil fields, even knowing that that will lead to the deaths of millions of people in the global south. That's that's his position. Now, what happened was we signed the declaration, lawyers are responsible, saying we we won't do that work, even if it's a breach of the cab rank rule, I'm willing to go in front of my professional body and suffer the consequences because I will not on my conscience and immorality do that work. And um, the day before the declaration was due out, um, Nick was given a, Mr. Vinyl was given a platform in the inner temple church, the church of barristers effectively, temple church, to make a speech from the pulpit saying that barristers should be forced to open new oil fields. Um, 
I mean, <laughs> I may, maybe he hasn't read the biblical part about throwing the money money changers from uh, from the temple. I don't know. Um, but I spoke to the, the 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 vicar of Temple Church, and he found that totally acceptable. And there's, there's an online video of me having a little argument with him there. And I saw it. And actually, I, I was in a slight difficult position there because I think it was absolutely disgraceful that he used a pulpit, a Christian church service, to advocate effectively for causing the deaths of people in the global south, which is what what that is. Um, opening new oil fields in this era is directly causing those deaths. But I didn't want to interrupt a church service myself, so I waited till afterwards I put up a placard which said, how many deaths does Cabrank justify? Which is, I think, a question that every barrister should ask themselves. This rule, this supposedly sacred rule that basically everyone ignores anyway in, in most circumstances, how many deaths do you think you can justify on the basis of that rule? And no one's come up for an answer. Nick, uh, Mr. Vinyl's refused to debate me. Um, don't know why. He's a very intelligent man. He must have very good arguments. So I don't know why he doesn't want to put those to the test in a public debate, but he's he's refused my entreaties so far. And most of the profession doesn't really want to talk about it. They want to keep pushing it down. And unfortunately, that is not going to be pushed down forever. We're going to have to confront it. Um, and I think that reckoning is is rapidly coming. And there are, there are lawyers that, you know, I'm thinking of Uplift's Tessa Khan, for example, which are really taking this challenge seriously. Do you think amongst the legal profession... There are those waking up from the matrix. There are some, but there's there's really not enough. And you know, I, I always think it's fascinating that we're even having this debate about you know should we be assisting the opening of new oil fields because it should be going the other way. You know, barristers are some of some of the most intelligent, highly trained people in our society. We should be in this time of great crisis. We should be using our energy and our intelligence and our resourcefulness to assist. The, the, um, the great societal transformation that needs to take place to actively help our society. And it feels a bit mad to me that I'm out here arguing that maybe we shouldn't add to the destruction, guys. Actually, we should be going the other way and saying, what should our profession in this time of great crisis, what is our moral responsibility and what should we be doing? Um, and I wish more uh, barristers would, um, would wake up to that. Hopefully they will. If I, if I could um, propose then uh, a hypothetical for you, you've got this platform now, you're the head of, let's say, DEFRA's legal team, you're the head of the government's legal team, you've got full control over the manifesto and what, what, what to do. What would you do in the first six months? For climate or nature or both? <laughs> you've got the platform, you've got the power. They, they, they say, Paul, we want you. We'll run with whatever you say. I, I do think, and we, we touched briefly on this earlier, but I do think rights of nature is, is really important because rights of nature, which is the idea that um, nature should have uh, legal standing, legal personhood, self-ownership perhaps, and substantive rights, that should be important within our legal system. And to me, that almost that's the first stage before we even get to determining what environmental law should be because it's like the the source code within the legal system determines the outcome almost regardless of the laws so for instance that sounds a bit of a weird way of saying it but for instance we we can have like different laws about companies but the fact that companies exist and have legal personhood is part of that source code it's what gives them their power now imagine if we, for instance, for companies, like say for Tesco, um, we could have laws such as, you know, breach of contract, theft would apply to Tesco, but that every single time something like that happened, Tesco couldn't bring a, uh, a legal action itself. 
you had to go to the uh, the company agency, like an environment agency equivalent for companies, who was in charge of enforcing the rights of companies, and grossly underfunded, and couldn't and only could basically take up five percent of the things less than that that came to it. What would happen to companies like Tesco, who weren't able to enforce their rights in that way? They would collapse because people just walk into Tesco and steal stuff because they know there's a ninety five percent chance of them getting away with it. So it, we do need stronger laws for nature, but we need rights of nature for nature to be recognized as a legal person within our system to change that underlying source code, because that is what underlies everything. All the rest is on top of it, but that's, that's, that's where it starts. It's, it's already illegal to dump sewage in our rivers, but com- water companies get away with it because the river can't sue you and the environment agency can't do the vast majority of cases that are brought to it because they're, they're grossly underfunded. So does that mean you're then saying then we need to make nature a person? A legal person. Yeah. And that sounds mad. You know, how, how can a river sue someone? But, you know, companies are, are a legal person and they're completely fictional. Tesco doesn't actually exist. It's complete legal fiction. We just made the idea up in the 19th century because it made sense to. Um, and, and the reason we did it in the 19th century was that what, what, what we were seeking from putting that, that code into our legal system, that companies, that form can exist, we were seeking a way to turbocharge economic growth, entrepreneurship, innovation, and it worked. But if we think to now, what are the challenges we face? That they're not lack of innovation or you know, economic prosperity. They are um, the environmental sustainability of our society. And so we need to inject new source code to do that. And that is the equivalent for nowadays would be to give personhood to nature in the way that we gave it to companies in the 19th century. And I always say, I think it's very interesting that English lawyers managed to give legal personhood to a completely fictional entity before they gave it to things that actually exist, that have existed here long before humans got here, will exist here probably long after we're gone, and for which we fundamentally rely on our own existence. If, 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 if Tesco disappeared tomorrow, you know, we would find a way to carry on. If our rivers disappeared, we've got nothing. <laughs> You've genuinely bending my mind this interview. Thank you so much. Thank you so in much. In a good way? In a great way. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. ENDS approached Mr. Nick Vinyl and the Bar Council in response to Paul's claims. And in a statement, they said, We face unprecedented threats from climate change and we all have a part to play, which is why the Bar Council recently hosted the first Bar Sustainability Summit. The summit explored the roles of professionals in responding to the climate emergency, both in terms of practical actions and discussions around the concept of lawyered emissions. There is no intrinsic tension between the cab rank rule, they said, and the many members of the bar who are profoundly concerned about climate change. The cab rank rule is a key obligation requiring that barristers do not discriminate between clients. They added that if a barrister is offered a case which they are competent to do and available to take, they must take it. The role of a barrister is, they say, to advise and represent, not to judge. If barristers start to pick and choose their clients on the basis of the barrister's opinion and beliefs, it will mean that some clients cannot get the representation of their choice and it will prejudice the bar's reputation for independence. All of these important issues were recently discussed and debated during the April Bar Council meeting which included contributions from Paul Powsland and a number of other barristers. I didn't get a response from Sheffield City Council at the time of this recording, so I thought I'd just read out a little bit of their public apology, which they issued in March this year, 
following an independent report published that same month, the 6th. So that's been a long time coming. After that report, they said, We are sorry for the actions that we took during the street trees dispute. We recognise that this full apology for some is a long time coming, and we understand that due to the council's behaviour, some people will never forgive Sheffield City Council and have lost trust and faith in us. The South Yorkshire Police Force did get back to us, though, and they told ENDS that the force, quote, maintains its position of operational independence throughout the tree works in Sheffield, where it was felt that South Yorkshire Police provided professional challenge and advice in an attempt to resolve some of the issues faced. South Yorkshire Police fully accepts the findings of the recent independent Sheffield Street Trees Inquiry report and believes the report achieved its aim of supporting truth and reconciliation, an aim we support wholeheartedly. And in response to the Wellingborough tree protest, a Northamptonshire police spokesperson told ENDS that in responding to this situation, Northamptonshire police sought to strike a balance between the rights of people being allowed to engage in peaceful, lawful protest and the rights of businesses to undertake their work. Some protesters were deemed by police to have been committing aggravated trespass and were subsequently given several warnings by police officers to cease their behaviour and move away. A small number of people chose to ignore these warnings, resulting in several arrests being made and low-level force being used in order to do so. In line with standard practice, officers utilised body-worn video during these arrests to ensure accountability. If you want to know more about tree felling, in particular what was going down in Sheffield, then I would highly suggest the documentary The Felling, an epic tale of people power, if you can watch that one. And that's it. My thanks to Shosha AD, Pippa Neal and Paul Powsland for coming on to this week's episode of The Eco Chamber, where I've learned that the potential environmental impact of the North Sea oil and gas expansions may well be felt far beyond the seismic air gun surveys and drills. That Therese Coffee is a lady not to be turned on the law of rule. And blame the EPR for inflation. Not. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the readers of ENDS Report, whose subscriptions ensure that important investigative journalism about the UK's natural environment actually takes place. As always, we would really love to hear your thoughts, criticisms, heresies, opinions on this week's episode. So please do email us ecochamber at haymarket.com or by using the X tag, hashtag ecochamber. Um, Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and maybe even share it with a friend. Until the next time, take care of yourselves.